I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Hi, everybody. I hope you're having a great week. This week, I am pleased to announce that my sponsor is going to be somebody I've picked. I'm not accepting money from sponsors anymore. I'm just trying to help out small businesses um, while we all go through this period of time. And I've collaborated with Page One Books, pageonebooks.com, and the one is not O-N-E, it's page number one, pageonebooks.com, and also Hampton's Hand Poured, which is a small candle-making business. And the three of us have teamed up to create a book box bundle containing three books that are particularly relevant slash funny slash entertaining for this period of time, one by John Kenny, one by Carla Nomberg, and one by Jen Gotch. And also a candle that has a label that says, next chapter, please, because... I don't know about you. I'm definitely ready for the next chapter of life. So please go on page1books.com. 15% of the proceeds, which is my entire portion, I'm donating to COVID-19 recovery efforts. So buy yourself a box. Send a box to someone who you know needs a pick-me-up. It'll be really helpful. They'll read the three books, light a candle, and feel immediately better. Now's the time. And it helps support these two small businesses, Page One Books and Hampton's Hand Poured. And you'll make a difference on so many levels. So please check it out. It's on my website, and it's also on pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much. Also, just wanted to remind you that this week, like every week, I have five new essays up in We Found Time, my new online magazine. We Found Time's five essays this week are written by Christina Geist, Tiffany Schlain, Wendy Walker, Beth Riccanati, and Mara Laura Philpot, who have all been on my podcast already. So you might have listened to their episodes, or you should go back and listen to them again. And they've written fantastic essays on everything from taking one day off a week for technology to not prioritizing finding a new man when you have a teenage boy at home, all sorts of great stuff. So please check out wefoundtime.com any day this week for our five new essays. Adrienne Miller is the author of the novel The Coast of Akron and In the Land of Men, a memoir. She was the literary and fiction editor of Esquire from 1997 to 2006. She currently lives in New York with her husband and son. I'm here with Adrienne Miller, but I accidentally did not record this properly. So we're gonna, I'm asking her this question again, but if it doesn't sound as spontaneous, it's because I messed up my recording. So anyway, Adrienne. <laughs> Welcome for the second time. <laughs> well, it's so so great to be here for the second time. Could you please tell <laughs> listeners what In the Land of Men is about? Or if you want, I could just tell them. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, you go. Okay. So let me put it to you in the flat, flap copy-ish sort of way. It is my coming-of-age story in the male-dominated literary world of the 90s. Two parallel stories, my becoming the first female literary editor of Esquire at the age of 25, and also my friendship slash professional relationship slash romantic relationship with one David Foster Wallace. That is the sort of the crude way of sort of putting it. A writer is probably the worst person to talk to about how to how to explain and describe his or her work. During the process when I was writing this for three years, people would ask me what the book was about. I would sort of stammer, mumble, and say, it's about my life in my 20s. It's about working in magazines. I guess that's enough. Didn't sound very interesting. But the book is also, I think, about power, 
I'm very fascinated in, by the nature of time. It's, I believe, has to do with, it's a workplace story. It also has to do with how to build a self, how to be a person in the world, and how to be a decent human being. And at the time that you got the job as literary fiction editor of Esquire, there was a lot of buzz about so for, from some probably very jealous people who wish they had gotten that plum assignment. Tell me about how it felt at the time when people were maybe not so welcoming for you in this new job, having just been an assistant. And I had all I had done in the world was, you know, be an idiot in Ohio, graduate from college in Ohio. And for three years, I was an editorial assistant at GQ in the literary department. Okay. Um, but still an assistant at the age of when I was 25, the job for long story short, the, the Esquire literary job opened up and I put myself up for it. I made a real pest of myself. I lobbied really hard for the job over, you know, a series of months. I put together presentations. There were phone calls. There were multiple interviews. And eventually, many months later, I was appointed the job. Two extremely prominent men had had this job, literary editor of Esquire. In the mid-century, Gordon Lish, who was most famously Raymond Carver's editor and helped to sort of engineer that whole sort of minimalist Carver-esque sort of style, reticent, menacing Carver style that was so influential to a generation of American writers. And Rust Hills, who had been there since 19... 57, and was in fact still at Esquire when I started in 1997 in a somewhat reduced emeritus role. I was 50 years younger than Rust and also conspicuously female. And so, you know, first week on the job, I'm introducing myself, reintroducing myself to various literary world figures, making phone calls, saying, hey, here I am, send me short stories. And, you know, I'll never forget One of the first conversations I had was with this very prominent male literary agent who said to me, you don't have any authority to do this job. And he said, and he was very direct about it. It wasn't a sort of a a backstabbing sort of, you know, invisible Twitter, you know, insult. It was right to my face. You don't have the authority to do this job. It was direct, at least. Yeah, at least you could say something <laughs> back. And I couldn't totally yeah. disagree with yeah. him also. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, there's also no arrogance, like the arrogance of, of youth. Right. Right? <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. I interviewed Emily Nemens, who's now the editor oh, yeah. of the Paris Review. Mm-hmm. And I said something to her, like, how did it feel to be, you know, plucked for this job? And she was like, I wasn't plucked. Like, I worked hard to get this job. And the same way as what you're saying, even in a male-dominated, traditionally, you know, older male-headed job, like, she worked and worked and got it. Just like you worked and worked. Like, you earned it. You didn't just... It didn't just fall in your lap. No, there was no, nobody, nobody told me that I should go for the job. But yet at the same time, nobody told me that I shouldn't. I mean, I just Why not? thought, I'm just going to go for this thing. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, that's how all the great things happen. It's like, so this was... This book was a lot about your whole experience in the magazine world at the time and so much of what happened to you along the way. But I was wondering, why did you write this now? Like, you stopped working in 2006 as the fiction editor of Esquire. Why did you turn back to this now? You've already written a novel. Mm -hmm. What happened? What inspired you to write it now? I think that true meaning can only come with time. 
I mean, that's one of the answers, right? And when you sort of 20 years later look back on your youth and your sort of formative, you know, years in your 20s, like, you know, what did this mean? Why, why was I miserable? <laughs> Let me really start taking this apart and processing this. I had a really hard time when David Foster Wallace died. He tragically committed suicide in 2008. And I became very angry. It was, it was very shut down. It was very hard for me to talk about. And you had had a relationship with him. I'd had, was- a, I'd had a, yes, I'd had a, we'd been friends. We had had worked together. I edited four of his stories at Esquire and we'd had a, a romantic relationship. And it was, it was a very difficult time in my life. And a couple years ago, like three years ago, I started, I had this compulsion to start writing down what I remembered of early conversations with him. The safe conversations before we met that were purely focused on our editorial relationship. And the first story of his I edited for Esquire was called Adult World. This was in 1998, a very long, dense, difficult story. And, you know, we became sort of phone friends for several months before we actually met. And these conversations were fun and fascinating and kind of inappropriate, but extremely memorable. And so I sat down and I sort of put myself into sort of self-hypnotized sort of state and typed out, typed out what I recalled from these conversations. And the book sort of then started from there. Did you consider only making it about that relationship? Or did this, like, I'm always curious d- how form come, follows story in, in books, how it becomes what it is. Like, you started almost like as a therapy exercise. For I did, I did. And I thought that maybe it would be a, a short sort of biographical treatment. Mm-hmm. And maybe I wouldn't even get into, for instance, the romantic part of our relationship. Mm-hmm. I just sort of, for, for a year, just sort of wrote through it and wanted to see where it would go. I thought maybe it's a magazine piece. Mm-hmm. Maybe I won't even publish it at all. But then I, I sort of understood that these were two parallel stories, my career mm-hmm. And my relationship with him were sort of, were were the same. And in fact, had sort of the same sort of ending, which was that the contraction of the magazine industry. Mm -hmm. I was at Esquire for almost nine years. By the time I finally left, I was barely able to get any fiction through. Mm -hmm. The last story of David's that I worked on with him was killed Mm -hmm. by the magazine. And I never, and, you know, I mean, we exchanged some letters after that, but uh, but essentially that also sort of ended our relationship. The magazine was it was dying, and 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 the relationship then was over. Also, I found myself wondering about your predisposition almost in ending up in the relationship you had with David Foster Wallace to begin with, right? Like what attracts us to certain men, what gets us into these relationships? Because it was you know you you detail it so well in the book, but you had to sort of respond to him all the time and his changing moods and his, it was like following, I'm not saying this well, but you had to go along with his mental illness, essentially, which in however it manifested itself. And you had a quote, this came earlier in the book, but you said, I became used to thinking of myself as a vaguely illegitimate presence in the life of someone important to me. And I became accustomed to providing protection to brilliant, narcissistic, charismatic, fiercely ambitious men, men who never quite thought about extending the same protection to me. No, not quite. So I was wondering about your attraction to this narcissistic type and if it was a theme throughout or if you had a narcissistic parent or, I don't know. I thought I would just like delve right into your 
Sorry, Mom and Dad. <laughs> First of all, I mean, I think I should, you know, remind our listeners that this is a relationship that I would not have had now in my 40s. This is a relationship that I would not have had 10 years ago, even. I was in my 20s. And part of the goal of this book was for me to sort of recapture the mental state mm-hmm. that I was in at that time. I've always been attracted to sort of big personalities. I like characters and mm-hmm. I'm pretty lenient with characters, less so now in my 40s probably than <laughs> I was in my 20s. But I mean, just for instance, like, you know, all of the, the this coronavirus, you know, news and election dysfunction and all of the stuff that we're going through now, I found myself going down an Orson Welles rabbit hole. Speaking of big personalities, I just, um, for the last couple of days, I've just thought, you know what, I'm just going to watch some Orson Welles videos on on YouTube. Why not? Because I'm just, and I just, the grandiosity, the hilarity, the the brilliance, I'm amused and entertained by it. So this is kind of a personality type that I'm interested in, Mm -hmm. attracted to. I'm a writer. I also sort of, frankly, maybe impossibly mining, mining these types of people for material for things I'm writing. You know, I have great tolerance and great interest in the big, bold personality, male and female, by the way. I mean, it's hard. Sometimes these magnetic personalities, you just, it's hard. Right? Yeah. It's hard to stay away. It's hard to stay away. And also, like, you know, you don't also have to do a lot of work if you don't want to. You can just sort of sit back and be entertained. I'm not specifically talking about no, David because there was a lot of work involved for me with David. But So you asked a really interesting question in the book, which is, do you have to include what other people think about you in your own understanding of yourself? Tell me about that line. I spent a lot of time when I was younger worrying about what other people thought of me. I didn't quite understand, as you don't when you're young, that people actually aren't really thinking about you that much. And one of the great things about getting older is that you realize that actually no one is thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. You know, Gore Vidal has this great quote, it doesn't matter, said in his very waspish way, it doesn't matter what other people think of you. What matters is only what you think of other people. Sort of, this is 20 years later, sort of where I am, sort of in my kind of, you know, processing of human relationships. Then I wish that I hadn't, for example, asked everyone's opinion before before having made any decision. Now I sort of rely much more on my own conscience as the ultimate decision maker. And in the book, even you had some drafts of previously submitted fiction pieces to the magazine, and there were like a million comments. And you're like, how many people does it take to make oh, a yeah. decision around here? Exactly. I feel like it's the same thing. It's, it's like you don't need this, you don't have to rely on this collective decision making as much. Totally. Well, you know, interestingly, I was always very confident back to the arrogance of youth and my sort of literary judgment. I mean, that was never sort of, I never sort of questioned that. But in terms of my ability to actually live my life, <laughs> In my 20s, your drama in your 20s becomes everyone's drama, right? I mean, and we're all like that, and we're all just sort of in it, sort of together. And then we sort of become our own islands in our 40s, I guess. <laughs> I feel like you have to. Yeah. You have to keep your island afloat, you know, totally. between like kids and work and I don't know. Yeah. It's like you don't even have a choice. For sure. You had this one little comment in the book where you said you realized you loved reading plays and you had considered writing one. And I was just, and I know you've written a novel and I was wondering if you ever went back to that. It was sort of a throwaway line, but I don't know. Have you thought about going back to writing plays or what else have you thought about writing? So I became totally obsessed with plays because 
I was at the age of 12, 13 obsessed with the movie Amadeus, which was written by the great British playwright Peter Schaefer. He wrote the play and then also wrote the screenplay for the movie. And I had my father take me to the Akron Public Library, Akron, Ohio, every Saturday so I could read plays. By Peter Schaefer, I discovered Harold Pinter. Tom Stoppard didn't understand, of course, a word that Tom Stoppard wrote. But then I sort of, and then I got really interested in Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill. I love plays. I still love reading them. One of my favorite writers today is Annie Baker, who is just, I mean, I think, I think maybe she's my favorite writer going. The Flick, Antipodes, and uh, John, which is like so amazing. I'll read and see anything she puts on. But, you know, what is human life other than dialogue, <laughs> right? And, you know, and I found also sort of through writing and writing this book that I have a pretty precise memory of the delivered phrase. I could not believe how much you remembered in this book. I was like, how on earth did she remember all this? It turns out, and I'm, by the way, a real stickler for for this. I sort of made a rule with myself not to put quotes around a line of dialogue unless I remembered it. Exactly. Wow. And, you know, I'm just, fa- I'm fascinated by the way people speak, by people's speech patterns, by their acoustic profiles. And I would like to write a play, actually, in a sc- screenplay. I just, if things had gone differently for me in my life, you know, if, you know, I would have been probably a kid, I was a nerdy theater kid. I probably would have been one of these kids who sent a letter to Hal Prince, you know, the great, yes. the great mid-century theater director who then took, send an articulate, passionate letter to Hal Prince. He'd take you under his wing and you work for him for like 40 years. That probably would have been me if I knew how, how things worked or if I knew sort of what to, you know, how to make my way in the world when I was a teenager. But I love it. I'm a Broadway baby. I just, I love plays. It's just, I can't, I can't get enough. I had someone on the podcast recently, and I was like, your book should be a play, so maybe I'll put you in touch with her, and you can just write her play. Yeah, I would love that. There we go. That would work out perfectly. (laughs) You had another quote I just wanted to throw out. You said that Granger, who was your editor at Esquire, said, never underestimate how unprepared most people are. That was great, yeah. Just talk to me about that. So he hired me out of college. He was a friend of a friend. How do most things in this world happen? Because you know somebody. I got the job as an editorial assistant at GQ because a professor of mine knew someone who knew Granger, who was an an editor at GQ. You know, I had no sparkling CV at the age of 22. I'd had, you know, an internship in New York. That was it. I was an English major like everyone else. I was a women's women's studies minor, like everyone else. There was nothing really to distinguish me. But I studied before my interview back issues of GQ. I went to the library at school, pre-internet, obviously, mid-90s. And I studied like a Quranic scholar back issues of GQ, like for like 10 years. And I was able, when I went to New York, for my interviews, actually able to talk about what I had read in GQ. The writers who wrote the pieces, I knew their names. I sort of stylistically was vaguely able to talk about them. And that's the only reason I got the job. And that's, and Granger said, finally admitted years later that he had hired me because I was the only candidate for the job who'd bothered even to open the magazine. So I think that's an important part also of my story and really any sort of professional story, be overprepared. So true. I took a writing class a while ago. 
I think it was by Susan Shapiro. And the teacher said, you can't pitch a magazine unless you've read at least a year's worth of issues of the magazine. Totally. And I remember it was so long ago, I went to a library and I had to like get down all the magazines like from the library and paw through them. And like, who was advertising in this? Like, who are they appealing to? Absolutely. What, who else was writing? Like, don't pitch a topic that's been pitched already. Like all these things, but it's so true. And it's something that in our rush to finish everything, I feel like sometimes gets lost. For sure. I mean, and, you know, and it was always so extraordinary to me, the number of short story submissions at Esquire and also at GQ I would receive with names of past literary editors from like 20 years ago. Clearly, they're not even, I mean, had, hadn't even opened the magazine and looked at the masthead. I mean, rule number one, guys, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Come on, guys. <laughs> so... After you went through the whole magazine phase of your life where you were doing this, then what happened? Like, what happened between when you left Esquire? Did you write the novel right then? And then how much time? Like, just what's a brief, if you're doing a quick timeline of, like, your life since then? What's been happening? Big event. I had a kid. (laughs) who's now eight. It turns out that having a kid is a huge time commitment. No one sort of warned me about this, but great, beautiful. I mean, I get weepy looking at pictures of him from a year ago, five years ago. He's so cute. I've seen him on your Instagram. (laughs) He's eight and he's just the joy and love of my life. And, you know, I taught, you know, creative writing at various places. I did publish a novel that FSG brought out and I've been working on another novel sort of for, I mean, I'm just mortified to, to actually admit how long I've been working on this novel. I think it's almost done, but I mean, over a decade. So that's it. Wow. Yeah. What's that one about? Can you say? So there's barely a man in it. Okay. It's it's, it's in the it's, in the land of women. In the land of women. I mean, exactly. <laughs> and the men who appear, the male characters, are not these sort of slightly toxified, sort of, you know, questionable figures. They're kind of, it's a different type of man. It has to do with us women in, in classical, in the classical music world. Oh. Yeah. And you're a classical music fan. I'm a classical music fan and a very poor player of, of piano and violin. Both. Well, that's, yeah. you can't be that bad. I mean, do you still play them? Piano so. a little bit. Violin, no way. My son takes piano. Suzuki, fourth year. Wow. Yeah. It's impressive. I mm-hmm. tried that with my kids. And <laughs> it was, there were a lot of, of, you know, temper tantrums dragging the kid, you know, in tears into, <laughs> into his piano class. But we've gotten past <laughs> that. Having worked in such a male-dominated world, I feel like things are obviously very different today and people are much more aware of gender and lean in and all the rest of it. But if you were to give advice to somebody going into a more male-dominated field now, maybe like a hedge fund or I don't know, something, having worked your way through this yourself, would you have any advice from your own experience? A spine of steel. Don't listen to what they say. Consult yourself as your, you know, as, as your favorite person and as the person whose advice you, the only person whose advice you rely on and expect that it's going to be difficult. I think that that's, that's really it. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Expect rejections. You know, I mean, it's funny when I started at Esquire, there was a rejection letter waiting for me that past editors had written from a a submission by David Foster Wallace, a famous Wallace story called The Depressed Person. And it had been resoundingly rejected at Esquire. And 10 different editors, there were a lot of editors who worked there at the time, weighed in on it. Half of the people loathed it and admired it. Half half of the other, other editors just 
just pretty much loathed it. And, you know, it was at the start of my Esquire career, very instructive for me to see that this was two years after Infinite Jest was published. This has become one of his most famous stories and maybe actually even a canonized story. I mean, this is a very taut, very famous story, you know, and it was rejected. It was resoundingly rejected at Esquire. And so I guess the point is that people don't really know the experts, even the experts don't even really know what they're doing. So <laughs> that's, almost, that's a little depressing. And it's true. It's like a crapshoot. No, it's, it's true. true. It's, it's like luck and it's, it's not. Lo- luck and, and perseverance, self-belief. You know, I mean, at Esquire, I was so both impressed by slash astonished by the regular submitters. I would get people who were just pretty much consistently rejected and they would just come right back slugging away with another short story submission. I kind of love that. You know, you have to, you have to love the self-belief. It might actually be the most important quality and the most necessary quality in terms of success, (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) Just one last question. When you evaluate what you like and what you don't like, right? You, you said you never question your sort of literary taste and like what you thought would be the good essay versus a bad short story or something like that. Is there anything that you particularly respond to or that you think makes a great short story like as a reader an element of surprise mm-hmm. i guess you know i tend to read really for style too i mean i you know i love a voluptuous little reading experience i love like you know a beautifully composed sentence that's not enough though of course i mean it, it needs to the stakes need to be high mm. Mm. and that's and that's a very abstract thing to sort of talk about right and to sort of explain and describe but it's not only that something needs to happen it's just that it, it needs to sort of you know sort of wound you in a way well that is a perfect ending because that's what happened to you in this book like your relationship and the suicide and all of it it's like and that's what made this book so good so i think so it's like there, there's a happy there's a there, there's a, a sort of thank you but i think it, i didn't mean to say it was a depressing <laughs> book to me that was when you showed yourself the most uh, uh-huh. and that's what i responded to the most really Not the suicide okay. i mean i've read about david foster wallace's suicide in plenty of other books yeah but it was your response and your experience of it and leading up to it and i don't know i i found that very unique and moving it was the yeah i mean the mask really had to come off sort of finally at the end and yeah i mean that wasn't the only it was a great book i, I didn't mean to say that was the only <laughs> i just that i responded the most to that particular part but i thought it was great oh thank you at the end but anyway okay <laughs> well thanks for coming on thank you so much Zibby. thank you <laughs> you've been listening to moms don't have time to read books with zibby owens please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events Again, today's episode has been sponsored by my collaboration with Page One Books and Hamptons Hand Poured. Please check out the book box bundle retailing on pageonebooks.com, also available on my website, zibbyowens.com. Please check it out. And thanks again for checking out wefoundtime.com for this week's five new essays. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.